From Oxford University's Rothermere American Institute, this is The Last Best Hope, the podcast that looks at America from the outside in. I'm Adam Smith. New Year's Eve, 1862. In Manchester, England, a huge public meeting is taking place in the magnificent Palazzo-style Free Trade Hall on Peter Street. 6,000 people are there, many of them working men, though middle-class reformers are there too. After hearing speeches, the meeting agrees by acclamation to a resolution that they send a message of support to the President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was congratulated for his Emancipation Proclamation, a humane and righteous course that he'd announced would come into effect the following day. Why did so many people in Lancashire turn up to a meeting on a wet Wednesday in December, and it was raining that evening, I've checked in the papers, to congratulate the leader of a foreign country? Well, the short answer is that in a sense, what happened in America didn't feel as if it was truly foreign. As the message to President Lincoln said, We are certain that such a glorious consummation they were referring to the ending of slavery, will cement Great Britain to the United States in close and enduring regards. Our interests, moreover, are identified with yours. We are truly one people, though locally separate. For British liberals and radicals, the stakes in the American war could not be higher. The liberal free trader John Bright warned that if the Confederacy triumphed, European democracy would be silenced and dumbfounded forever. Lincoln calls the American Union the the, the world's last best hope. Ordinary working men expect to vote and they take part in elections increasingly uh, throughout the antebellum period. And that is not happening in Europe, where the failure of revolutions in 1848 has set back the advance of democracy uh, and and reopened questions of, of who should be in power. Um, and so for liberals, but, but even more for, for those working class men who um, take part in these public meetings, they, they, why should they not participate in British democracy? And, and the US is the model that they, they want to emulate. The war between the Union and the slaveholding oligarchs of the South was just the latest battle in the enduring conflict between democracy and autocracy, between freedom and despotism. Or so it seemed to those Lancashire men on that New Year's Eve in 1862. But in Lancashire, the war in America was more than just an ideological struggle. It had a tangible material impact as well. Lancashire was the heart of the British textile industry. More than 90% of the raw cotton coming into Britain on the eve of the Civil War came from America. And so when the southern states seceded, the cotton stopped coming. So the Confederates themselves, in the spring of 1861, when the war broke out, were burning bales of cotton under in New Orleans Harbour, right? To force the British to intervene and to get rid of the um, declaration of neutrality and to get involved. Crazy, but a politically very uh, astute, uh, symbolic approach to dealing with the problems. The cotton famine was a real thing. The British textile industry was devastated. So what happened to Confederate hopes that the cotton famine would turn British public opinion in favour of intervention to support the South? 
Did the letter of the Manchester working men really represent the views of the mass of the working class? To explore this question, I spoke to David Brown, Senior Lecturer in American Studies at the University of Manchester, who's writing a book about all this, and to Richard Blackett, the Andrew Jackson Professor of History at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee, and the author of many books, including Divided Hearts, Britain and the American Civil War. Dave, let's let's start with you, and let's start with that Manchester meeting on New Year's Eve, 1862. Can you... Tell us first about how that meeting was organised and by whom. I mean, what what were people doing there? I mean, there were apparently 6,000 people in the Free Trade Hall in Manchester. Who had brought them there? How did they know about it? It, Tell us the backstory. So the the Free Trade Hall meeting at the end of um, 1862 remains a bit of a mystery. Nobody knows for sure why those folks are there. And I would suggest that there are... A, a variety of factors as to, to why it took place. In the long run, uh, Lancashire was the region of the country most affected by the American Civil War. Arguably, the greatest economic impact of the war overseas was the end of cotton to, to Lancashire. And by the end of 1862, about three quarters of the working population was on shortened hours or, or, or simply out of work. So it was um, an economic catastrophe in, in the making. The pro-Confederate position within Britain was strong in 1862, arguably much stronger than that of the Union. Um, For the first 18 months of the war, William Seward seems to want to fight with the British as far as he can. He's Lincoln's Secretary of State. Um, He uh, seems to be antagonistic towards Britain, perhaps to keep it out of the war, knowing that the British or the French could be very important allies of the Confederacy. So within Britain itself, there is a kind of pro-Confederate leanings, I would say. Uh, Most newspapers, with one or two exceptions, are openly pro-Confederate, in large part because the Union has not put slavery on the agenda in the first 18 months of the war. You know, Abraham Lincoln's uh, stated um, intention is to restore the Union as it is and not to affect slavery he will not interfere with slavery but by the summer of 62 he's beginning to change that position um and so when he issues the emancipation proclamation in september 1862 in some ways this is a a clarion call to those britons who are uneasy with the pro-confederate stance that the country has has taken up to that point not explicitly but you know, public sympathy seems to be more with the Confederacy as a plucky nation seeking to make its own way and throwing off the the more powerful oppressor that the, the Confederates would talk about. Um, and so Lincoln's move towards um, placing slavery uh, on a road to extinction was very important. And and there are there's a, there's a number of there's a small number of Britons who are uh, mostly from an anti-slavery position. And they were determined to push the pendulum back to away from the Confederacy and at least towards neutrality. In Manchester itself, um, Manchester is a, is a radical town with um, a radical history stretching back decades um, from Peterloo at the beginning of the century through Chartism, through uh, electoral reform. And I f- suspect that the people who organised the meeting on New Year's Eve, were sympathetic to the Union as much as they were anti-slavery. It goes without saying, um, 
all Britons were anti-slavery. They 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 proclaimed um, that slavery was an evil institution, and they were proud of their history as a country which claimed the moral superiority by ending slavery. Um, and they didn't think too much about that. Of course, you know that claim is is open to to question in, in some ways, but undeniably, you know, Brit- Britain ended West Indian slavery in the 1830s. And so in Manchester, um, I think there was a, a movement which was inspired by the formation of the London Emancipation Society um, in November 1862, just about six weeks before that meeting was held. Um, George Thompson, the veteran British anti-slavery and indeed re- reform campaigner of many stripes, um, George Thompson was was ploughing a lone furrow in the first year and a half of the war, it seems to me, in, in terms of, of, of um, defending the Union. He went as far as anybody else did in defending the Union, along with African-American allies. And Thompson, along with his son-in-law, um, Chesson, forms the London Emancipation Society. That cry for help is received in Manchester. And a group of working men. They describe themselves as the Manchester working men. They do. And they are a good reason that they do that. They want to appear to be working men. And in large part, I think they are. You know, they're not a rank and file who've who've come in off the street. They are experienced organisers who have put this meeting together. And I think they put it together not expecting the reaction necessarily that they got. I I think they were surprised to find there was so much interest. 6,000 people showing up is a lot of people by most standards in terms of judging attendance at public meetings. Um, And it was, in some ways, it was their, their... a chance to to make a statement, but also to gauge opinion and where it stood with respect to Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation being issued and the the further prospect of the Emancipation Proclamation being enacted on January the 1st. That's why it was the day before um, New Year's Day. Richard, we need to understand what a public meeting is. I mean, you've studied for the, for the work that you did for your book on the impact of the American Civil War in Britain. I mean, you studied what dozens, hundreds of these meetings, the, re- the reports of them in the press. The, the Manchester Free Trade Hall meeting that we've been talking about with Dave is the most famous of them, possibly one of the largest of them. But there were many, many of them in, in small places, in temperance halls, in town halls, in churches. Can you give us a sense of what it would be like to come, go along to one of these public meetings? There weren't presumably just public meetings about slavery in the American Civil War, there was a kind of, there was a format here, there was a set of expectations about what what would happen when you turned up at one. Can you kind of talk us through that? Give us a sense of it. Yeah. These public meetings, there's, it's usually a platform, a dais, on which the prominent people, the leaders of the meeting would sit. They would also pack the front of the meeting closest to the dais, so that the rowdies, the opponents, can get close to them as possible. The speeches would come first, then the motions would come after. And it's at that point that you have things could unravel uh, because the opposition would propose a counter motion and call for a vote. Uh, so there's a lot of toing and froing going on. There's a lot of noise going on in the room. In some meetings, opponents of the organizers of the meeting try to get their own supporters onto the stage. So you have some wonderful descriptions of people with their feet, their toes at the edge of the, the, 
the stage being pushed from behind and the people on the stage pushing them off. So there's all that kind of jostling that's going on. And just to be clear, Richard, this is these are all male meetings, right? There yes. are no women in, ever present. No women yes. ever present. Invariably, they're all male meetings. The conflict comes at the point at the end of the speeches when motions are proposed, and motions such as the working men of Manchester support the union cause as well as emancipation. And that is critical in this meeting because for the first time, they can call themselves both pro-union and pro-emancipation in the name of the organization. And it's very specific that they take this point. So it forces the opposition to ask the question, to, to make a point that, yes, I'm for emancipation, that I'm not for union. And people would counter the two, those two things go together. You cannot be one without the other. So it was now possible by the end of 1862 to make the case, as you've just said, Richard, that if you want emancipation, if you want to take forward the war against the, the struggle against slavery, which we've been fighting, they imagine, for several decades, and you want to destroy the largest slaveholding region remaining in the world, then the way to do that is now clearly to support the union. That might not have been clear a year earlier or even six months earlier, but it is clear by the beginning of 63. What you've just been saying there, Richard, leads me to ask Dave now to talk a little bit about the anti-slavery movement in Britain before the war, because as you've just been explaining, Richard, it's not obvious. It may seem may seem obvious to us in retrospect, because we know how the American Civil War turned out, that if you support the anti-slavery movement, therefore you should support Abraham Lincoln and support the Union. But it's at least plausible to imagine how in 1861, 1862, you could make a case of saying, no, no, quite sincerely, if you want to end slavery, the way to do that is to allow Confederate uh, secession, and then we... I don't know, embargo the new Confederate States of America. We, we've now, we would then have created a new, uh, they would imagine, a new free state anti-slavery United States of America. So you're quarantining the, the problem. I mean, that at least sounds like a plausible case. So, Dave, can you talk a little bit about the, the history of anti-slavery leading up to the war? And were there, were there important, prominent anti-slavery spokesmen in Britain who took that line? in the early years of the Civil War? So the anti-slavery movement in Britain reaches a peak in the 1830s when it, it, it achieves its goal. By 1838, slavery has been abolished in, in the West Indies, and Britain begins to claim this mantle of being the world's moral guardian because it is, uh, and it, it does take on an anti-slavery agenda. Its government becomes involved in trying to police the international slavery trade. The, the Royal Navy is chasing down Slave ships. Yeah, the Royal yeah. Navy, it, it, it's, its West African squadron is trying to prevent imports of, of, of new slaves into to be sold in, into the new world. Um, in large part, I think because of people like William Lloyd Garrison, but also because of African-American activists, um, Charles Raymond, and then most famously um, Frederick Douglass, but a whole host of others, they will not allow Britain to forget that they, they, were, they were the country that introduced slavery into North America, and they have, if they are going to live up to this moral superiority, then they're going to have to become involved in ending American slavery. And that's the origins of the Anglo-American transatlantic slavery movement that brings about great pressure on the respective governments 
that pioneers many of the tactics that we associate with pressure groups in, in modern democracies. The print literature that they managed to pump out was, was in the millions, the meetings held. Consumer boycotts um, and, and things like that, boy, boycotting slave-grown goods Consumer and so Consumer boycotts of, of, of slave-grown sugar. But inevitably, I think there is a, there is a, a fading away of active anti-slavery members of, of abolition societies that the main British organization is the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society, formed in 1838 with a specific mission to, to maintain um, an eye on slavery in a global sense. But that really becomes um, involved, directed at ending American slavery. So the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society is based in London, but it's, it's through networks of, of families and people that anti-slavery continues through the 1840s into the 1850s. Richard, post British imperial emancipation, so looking to the 1840s and 50s, what kinds of people in Britain were involved in the continuing anti-slavery struggle? And that, I mean, those were the people who were presumably very focused on the situation in the United States. And of course, we, we, they were visiting African-American speakers. I've talked before on this podcast to Hannah Rose Murray, who's wrote, written this wonderful book about, um, about uh, fugitive slaves, visiting Britain and the, and the kind of celebrity status that some of them acquired through through this period. What, what, how would you characterise the movement in this 20 years after British abolition? It's, it's sustained to a significant degree by family members, by descendants of all abolitionists. Uh, the problem with that is that the passion that the parents brought are not always sustained by the children. There's also a couple other additional problems. One is that the freedom experiment in the Caribbean seemed to have gone awry. Uh, Jamaica's economy, many believe, it's, well, let me put it this way, its sugar economy has collapsed. So people said, and American slaveholders are very aware of this, that, look, the one experiment with slavery has left to a disaster. And that, I think, begins to affect people's, Experiment affect with people's emancipation. perception yeah. of the merits of emancipation. Because if you free these people, they will not work. And I use that phrase because there's that scurrilous um, pamphlet that's published by Carlyle at the end of the 1840s. Uh, the occasional, the first version is called The Occasional Discourse on the Negro Question. Uh, the second edition, he changes the Negro to the N-word. Um, but the point that he says is that if you, if you put a backward people in a society, in an economy, in a place that is productive, uh, then they will not be forced to work. And, and these people must be forced to work. That has a real effect on the way people see English people see, perceive the experiment in the Caribbean and by extension, what folks are trying to argue for the abolition of slavery in the United States. So that's a negative and it is, it is a profound negative. Uh, when Douglas returns in 1859 um, for his second visit to England, he is really struck by the changes that have taken place in the 15 years between when he was first in England and when on his second visit. Thomas Carlyle's pamphlet that you refer to is often taken as a as an indicator of our 
hardening racism in, in Victorian Britain in the 1850s. Of course, there's an awful lot else going on here, you know, intellectually, the beginnings of the kind of pseudoscience of, uh, of, of race polygenesis, theories of polygenesis, so that the notion that black people and white people and other races of people are imagined to be separate species. And, and all of these things, I think, are feeding together, aren't they, to, alongside the kind of political economy critique, such as it is that you've outlined there about the imagined economic disaster of emancipation in the, in the British West Indies. Whatever the kind of intellectual ideological questions raised by the war in America, the, raw, the supply of raw cotton is seemed to be essential to the British economy. And, and this one supplier, the United States, had a near monopoly control over it, which is why Southerners uh, in America in the run-up to the war could talk about King Cotton and King Cotton diplomacy, thinking that if they cut off the supply of raw cotton, then Britain would fall to its knees and would do whatever the Confederates wanted, which is essentially to recognise them and support their bid for independence. Yes, the raw cotton did stop coming and and the economic effects were disastrous. Um, And two, um, southern planters during the secession crisis, this was motivating their actions, you know, rather than wondering whether Britain is going to help them out as as they leave the Union and, and in that that moment of intense crisis with the, with the within the United States, they expect it to happen. You know, James Henry Hammond in the in the Senate proclaims cotton is king in 1850. So he genuinely believes cotton North is Carolina king. Senator. He not only talks about the downfall of the British economy, he talks about the end of the Bank of England. This issue of cotton supply is a real problem. Richard Blackett. By the middle of the 1850s, uh, Lancashire cotton people are very aware of this monopoly and the dangers of it. And they begin to pressure the government to find alternative sources of cotton. It's a bit like Germany and its dependence on, on Russian uh, gas, isn't it? Yes. yes. But, that, but that's, and that, in, and in the end, I mean, the story, the story that, that I know anyway, is that in the end, of course, there were new sources opened up in India and in Egypt, but that hadn't really happened to any significant degree by the time the American Civil War started. It was marginal. India, Egypt, South Africa, but those were marginal. And the quality of the of the of the raw cotton produced was was not as good. It was far inferior. Surat cotton was just not a replacement for southern cotton, which was the finest grade of cotton available. So Richard, um I mean going back to this free trade whole meeting, they they send resolutions and they literally evidently send them to President Lincoln, or they probably do it through um, Ambassador Adams in London, I imagine. But, but Lincoln, Lincoln famously sends them a letter back, and, and, a, and an excerpt from that letter is now uh, on the plinth of the statue of Abraham Lincoln, which is in Manchester. Um, and Lincoln's main point uh, in, in that letter is to thank the working men of Manchester for their support for the union and for emancipation because of the distress that they are suffering. So he says, I cannot but regard your decisive utterance upon the question of slavery and union as an instance of sublime Christian heroism, which has not been surpassed in any age or in any country. I don't think Lincoln actually wrote that. I think that was probably Seward or Seward's son. But, but, but still that was, that's, that's those are Lincoln's, and that's how this meeting has been 
presented and, and the other meetings. So the question is how amazing that the textile mill workers of Manchester were suffering hugely. And, you know, Dave said three quarters of them unemployed, unbelievable economic distress. And yet, supposedly, they nevertheless supported uh, the union. I mean, Richard, can we see evidence that some of the places that were suffering most were nevertheless supported the union in spite of it? Or, or do we also see evidence that people reacted, I suppose, as the Confederates would hope they would react, which is by saying, right, well, you know, never mind the union and emancipation. I want, I want, I want to work. I need to feed my family. So we need to get the cotton supply going again. And if that means supporting the Confederacy, so be it. Over the sweep of the, the years between late 1862 and the end of the Civil War, the working class by and large tended to be partial to the union. That is as far as that is far as I am willing to go. But you know, Birmingham sent an amazing memorial to the Union uh, in 1863. The vast majority, and I have gone through and crunched all the, tried to, to break down the individuals who signed the memorial. And by and large, the overwhelming majority of them were working class people. They were not cotton workers, but they were working class people. And I think that is, that is that is a general pattern that we see uh, throughout this period, even in places that were suffering the most. And Dave, you've written about a meeting in Bolton, which was organised by pro-union, pro-emancipation people in much the same way as the Free Trade Hall meeting that we discussed at the beginning. And it didn't go quite to plan, did it, the first one of those meetings? Do you want to kind of talk us through that meeting and what what, what happened? The pro-Confederates um, have a strong showing in the audience. They do strongly contest the amendments that are, that are set down at the beginning of the evening, the motions with strong counter-amendments. Um, and the first meeting ends in chaos. One of the resolutions is passed. The second one is passed with, with half the audience left because the, 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 the meeting has descended into chaos. And the third resolution isn't voted on at all. And that's then reflected in letters to the local paper, which suggests that this is not really a public meeting or a test of anything. It's, it's an orchestrated uh, event by a particular vested interest group. It's what, what an American politician might be called an astroturf movement. So it, it, it sort of so purports to represent public opinion, but isn't, isn't really. And the, the, the Bolton Chronicle, which I deduce from, from the, the work you've done, had got a long history of saying this kind of thing. It's an editorial in the Bolton Chronicle, which uh, where the editor writes, this was, this was not an English agitation, but a Yankee agitation upon English ground. Uh, and that Mr. Adams, the, the referring to the American ambassador, the U.S. ambassador in London, with the aid of Washington gold, is the cunning magician that pulls the wires. So in other words, this, this is, you know, they're saying this tells you absolutely nothing about what ordinary men in Bolton think. It's an attempt to discredit the meeting by a newspaper which um, was anti-union. It probably would not claim itself to be pro-Confederate as much as it was anti-union. And these are, these are complicated positions. But many of those newspaper editors seem to have dis- disliked Abraham Lincoln's administration in particular, the chaos of, of the American North, the, the free-for-all that they believed American democracy had descended into. Um, this was something for them which was not the model for Britain to follow. Um, it's worth reminding ourselves that the vast majority of Britons could not vote. 
at the, in the years that we are we're talking about. I think one in five voted um, in the early 1860s. But the vast majority of these people turning up to these public meetings and voting on resolutions aren't, of course, able to vote in parliamentary elections. Which arguably is why they, they want to demonstrate they are fit for civic status and, and, and to be included in the franchise. That's why they attend these meetings and are so vociferous. Um, and this is one of the reasons why the public de- opinion debate was so important, because the British government was forced to respond to what the public told it to do, because the vast majority of the public did not vote for that particular government administration, whatever it happened to be. There's an indication, Dave, this is all from your research here, there's, a, there's an indication of why people, some people in Bolton might have supported the union in a letter that the Bolton Chronicle published, even though it was critical of the Bolton Chronicle. And I really like this is by the, 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 the man writing him is called Alfred J. Gates. Um, many letter writers in the 19th century didn't use their, their own names. Yeah. So we must assume this is his real name. And I really like this because he, <laughs> in the, in from, this is from your research. It begins right. Glad I am <laughs> <laughs> right. Glad I am to find despite the yards of leaders in the Bolton Chronicle, in favour of Southern slavery and a virulent abuse of the endeavour of President Lincoln to maintain the American Constitution, that the working men of Bolton do not endorse your opinions. That was, I was veering into Preston there rather than Bolton. <laughs> it um, was very good. But, but um, his point there is, okay, so he's slagging off, he's writing to a newspaper and slagging off the editors for, sa- for, for being supporters of slavery and and he's saying, and, and I please, so the key phrase to me that's not, other than right glad I am, which I think is just a fantastic way of, <laughs> of opening a, a letter. But but the key phrase to me is Lincoln to maintain the American Constitution, and, and which he links to the working men of Bolton. And have we got a clue here? And I want to see, hear Richard's view on this here about the union. And we've been talking about the union and emancipation and whether you could, whether the best way of supporting emancipation is to support the union. But the union itself is doing a lot of, as it were, ideological work here as well, isn't it? And as Dave has, as Dave has been saying here, you know, most people in Britain couldn't vote. A lot of the people, the radicals organizing these meetings were ex-chartists, people who've been campaigning their whole lives to expand the suffrage. Abraham Lincoln is a working man, uneducated in a formal sense, working man who's risen to be the head of government and the head of state of his country. So am I right to assume that these union and emancipation societies, the word union there is doing a lot of work at signaling a kind of vision of a democratic future which matters quite aside, as it were, from the slavery issue. I mean, it might have seemed axiomatic to them that a, a, a democratic world in which, as it were, the People's Charter had gone into effect and all white working men had the vote would also be anti-slavery. But in a way, that's that's a kind of almost a separable issue. They're going to support the union because of what it represents from the point of view of, of white working men who want more political power. Uh, and that, that, I think, is a critical issue. Well said. One of the things that struck me at the end as I was... Uh, finishing my research, is that by the time you get to the end of the century, the most popular image in working-class homes is Abraham Lincoln. Uh, For many of the the folks uh, during the Civil War, they had family connections in the North. 
Many of them went back and forth across the Atlantic looking for work. Uh, the experience in America soured many of them, but for many of them, it remained a symbol of their hopes of actually achieving a democratic system in Britain in the 1860s. The same applies, by the way, for those people who are supporting the Confederacy. They are deeply troubled by this experiment in the United States. They would argue all along that they are, they are in support of republics, but republics, by and large, tend to be small units, not this massive, uh, troubling... Imperial endeavor. Yeah. For many people supporting the Confederates, they may not say it explicitly, but they are concerned, A, about what it means about the extension of the franchise for people who are trying to copy what's going on in the United States, but also because the United States is a very troubling political experiment. Uh, so one can see in, in the tensions and the crises and the differences over the war are all these other larger political issues that come in. The conservatives are very clear uh, in their analysis. Uh, this character called Beresford Hope, he is, he is at it all the time. That it, that what we have to do is break the country up into smaller units. Uh, some people have calculated there could be five countries in the United States. Uh, and that would preserve not only Britain's dominance, but also protect folks from this new experiment that is going on. They still see America as a new experiment, an unfinished experiment. I was speaking to David Brown of the University of Manchester and Richard Blackett of Vanderbilt. As economic shocks tend to do, the distress, as it was called at the time, in the textile towns in the early 1860s intensified ideological and class tensions. In this case, the tensions were focused on the great Republican experiment in North America. The successes and failures of the United States mattered to cotton operatives and to middle-class radicals, not just because of the harsh economic impact the war was causing, but because the battles being fought out in Britain over power and representation, over whose interests the Constitution served, were being fought out in America too, in a far bloodier way. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope, the podcast with a question mark at the end. Was the Union really the last best hope of Earth? The organisers of that free trade hall meeting in Manchester on New Year's Eve 1862 thought so, even if the grumpy editors and some of the correspondents to the Bolton Chronicle did not. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating. There are dozens of other episodes you can download. As always, the producer is Emily Williams. My name is Adam Smith. Goodbye. <laughs>